0: Hello, my pretties. Welcome to Fishnets and Phantoms, a podcast take on genre movies and media with your host, Amy Shofstrain. Fishnets and Phantoms is a podcast that is available on Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast mediums, including the Dark Discussions Network of Podcasts. We would like to thank its creator, Phil Perrone, for all the work he does on the Dark Discussions Network of Podcasts and for hosting Fishnets and Phantoms. Today on the podcast, we would like to wish everyone a happy summer solstice. Summer solstice is the longest day of the year in which the sun stays out for 4 or 5 in the morning until close to 9 at night, so it's a good day to get out there and have a lot of fun, uh, have some beach parties, and revel in the light. Enjoy that vitamin D because As we all know, the seasons change and the darker times are coming. Right now, things are fairly good in the world. I mean, I guess they're never perfect, but things are getting better and more on track. The virus is seemingly slightly at bay in some of the countries, in the western countries, and ravaging and overtaking some other countries like Brazil and India. I am hoping and praying for those countries that they get vaccine access soon and that it is available to be taken care of and this disease is soon eradicated. So everybody keep good hopes for those who, despite the sunshine, are in quite a bit of darkness right now. Okay, and now to the news of the miscellany. Apparently, according to the Insider Magazine Science Section, in an article by Aylin Woodward from June 18th, 2021, the Earth itself was going tipsy, a bit like a drunken bear, about 86 percent. 79 to 86 million years ago. A study shows that the Earth tipped over on its side and back again. The Earth tilted by 12 degrees, which would have moved New York City to where Florida is right now. Which, everyone would know, is quite a distortion. Earth's crust, apparently, can shift like this depending on how weight is distributed across the planet's surface. If you had been able to stare at the Earth from space during the late Cretaceous, when Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops roamed, it would have looked like the whole planet was tipped over on its side. According to geobiologist at Dartmouth College, Sarah Slotznik, the Earth tilted 12 degrees, an action that was similar to the Earth being a chocolate truffle, a viscous center surrounded by a hardened shell. The center consists of of semi-solid mantle that encircles the liquid outer core. The top layer of the truffle, the Earth's crust, is fragmented into tectonic plates that fit together like a puzzle. Continents and oceans sit atop these plates, which surf around atop the mantle. The researchers found that between 86 and 79 million years ago, the crust and the mantle had rotated around the Earth's outer core and back again causing the entire planet to tilt and then right itself like a roly-poly toy. Kind of uh, maybe imagine the roly-poly toys you had as a child. When lava at the junction between two tectonic plates cools, some of the resulting rock contains magnetic minerals that align with the directions of the Earth's magnetic poles at the time the rock solidified. Even after these plates containing these rocks had moved, Researchers can study that magnetic alignment to parse out where, on the global map, those natural magnets existed in the past. Ross Mitchell, a geophysicist at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, Slutsnik's co-author, When hotter, less dense material from deep within the mantle rises towards the crust and colder, denser material sinks towards the core, these plates can collide. Upon impact, one plate will subduct or sink under another. According to Slotznik, upwellings of hot rock and magma, known as mantle plumes from the outer core towards the crust, may have played a role in altering how Earth's mass was distributed during the late Cretaceous. Prior to the late Cretaceous, the Pacific plate, the largest tectonic plate on Earth spanning one spanning 40 million square miles under the Pacific Ocean, was sinking under another plate to the north. Around 84 million years ago, the Pacific plate started abducting in a different direction, under another plate to its west. This change might have very well changed the literal balance of the planet, Mitchell said. He wasn't overly surprised to find that the Earth had reversed course and tilted back, the planet's outer layer behaves elastically like a rubber band and would have snapped back to its original shape after the excursion. It doesn't say in the short article if the, the movement was felt by the inhabitants of Earth at the time, but it seems like it, it could not have not it couldn't it couldn't have not affected <laughs> it must have affected the um surface of the earth is what I'm saying but um, it's a really fascinating article, and I think I'm going to delve deeper into the science behind this. In more news of the miscellany, meet the worm with a jaw of metal. This is an article by Robbie Berman in The Big Think on June 18th, 2021. Apparently, the worm that I mentioned I believe was last podcast that they have found metal in its jaw and teeth is a bristle worm. Uh, Apparently these worms are somewhat familiar to saltwater aquarium enthusiasts. They have very sharp bristles on them and if you are brushed by them, or stung by them, or bitten by them, they are quite itchy and somewhat painful. The class of bristle worms is the class of the polychaetes. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, they are literally named for having many bristles and are a class of annelid worms and they're generally marine. Each body segment has a pair of fleshy protrusions called parapodia that bear many bristles called chetae, which are made of chitins. More than 10,000 species are described in this class. Common representatives include the lugworm and the sandworm or the clamworm. They are found throughout the earth. They are very robust and widespread. and They are the species that live in the coldest ocean temperatures of the abyssal plain. Their forms can tolerate extremely high temperatures near hydrothermal vents and extremely cold temperatures. Their favorite food is plankton, which they can find in abundance in the upper regions of the ocean and near the heated vents near the bottom. Polyhetes have been around for about 500 million years. Scientists believe that they are a super resilient species and have survived five mass extinctions. There are apparently about 10,000 species of them. Getting stung by one of them is an extremely itchy affair, as people who own saltwater aquariums can tell you. After they've accidentally touched the bristle worm that had possibly hitchhiked into a tank aboard a live rock, bristle worms are typically one to six inches long when found in a tank, but capable of growing up to 24 inches long. Yes, two feet long. That's a pretty long worm. All polychaetes have a segmented body. The jaws of one bristle worm, the Platinaris dummer lily, are super tough and un- are virtually unbreakable. It turns out, according to the new study that we are speaking of today, that the strength of their jaws is due to metal atoms that they have absorbed into the dental area. This is pretty unusual. The study's senior author Chris Helmick explains. The materials that vertebrates are made of are well-researched. Bones, for example, are very hierarchically structured. There are organic and mineral parts. Tiny structures are combined to form larger structures, which in turn form even larger structures. The bristleworm jaw, by contrast, replaces the minerals from which other creatures' bones are built with atoms of magnesium and zinc. What makes conventional metal so strong is not just its atoms, but the interactions between the atoms and the ways that they slide against each other. The sliding allows for a small amount of elastoplastic deformation when pressure is applied, endowing the metals with just enough malleability not to break, crack, or shatter. This plasticity has been proven to be very u- useful in the bristleworm jaws as it's kept the feature for 500 million years. The metal ions are incorporated directly into the protein chains and then ensure that different protein chains are held together. This leads to the creation of three-dimensional shapes the bristle worm can pack together into a structure that's malleable enough to withstand a significant amount of force. Helmick goes on to say that biology could serve as an inspiration here. For completely new kinds of materials, perhaps it is even possible to produce high-performance materials in a biological way, much more efficiently and environmentally friendly than we manage to today. Our next article is also in The Big Think, and it has to do with ultra-black fish species. Their skin absorbs 99.9% of light. It's a very goth fish and or metal fish. It is the blackest of black fish. Well, this is fun. As I'm recording this podcast, the doors to the building in which I'm working in keep opening and slamming shut on their own. I'm not sure if this has to do with rather high winds outside or if the ghosts are just Having some fun here. So, if you hear some thumping and smashing, <laughs> that's just the doors, or the ghosts, or the doors and the ghosts. Okay, in this article by Stephen Johnson from July 18th, 2020. Again, in The Big Thing, a team of marine biologists used nets to catch 16 species of deep-sea fish that have evolved the ability to be virtually unseeable by prey and predators. The ultra-black skin seems to be an evolutionary adaption that helps fish camouflage themselves in the deep, dark sea, which is illuminated by bioluminescent organisms. There are likely more... And potentially much darker ultra black fish lurking deeper in the ocean. The ultra black fish have adapted to the bioluminescence that is seen in some deep-sea fishes by becoming darker than dark so that they can hide out and ambush their prey easily. Some other species that have the ability to produce this darker than dark color are birds of paradise and some species of spiders and butterflies. Marine biologist Karen Osborne noticed the dark pigment when she was trying to take photographs of the fish and realized that she could shine two strobe lights on them and light just disappeared. After examining samples of the fish skin under a microscope, the researchers discovered that the fish skin contains a layer of organelles called melanosomes, which contain melanin, the same pigment that gives color to human skin and hair. This layer of melanosomes absorbs most of the light that hits them. But what isn't absorbed side scatters into the layer, and that's absorbed by neighboring pigments that are all packed right up close against it. So what they've done is to create this super-efficient, very little material system where they can basically build a light trap with just the pigment particles and nothing else. The result, strange and terrifying deep-sea species like the crested big-scale fangtooth, Pacific black dragon, all which appear in the deep seas as barely more than faint silhouettes. Gotta love any fish that is named the fangtooth. Oh my. There is a picture in this article of a Pacific viperfish. I thought it was a fangtooth, but it is a viperfish. I I don't really know how to explain it other than it is an incredibly dark fish with needle-sharp teeth on its upper jaw and slightly thicker but also needle-sharp teeth that would extend far over the fish's, I'm going to say, face. They would go up um, past its nose area on a human face and far beyond its eyes but luckily they stick out uh in a pretty deep and I guess it'd be underbite um a jaw juts out farther than the face of the fish uh the fish has a reddish skill area that is still very dark but um has a bit of a red sheen to it the black kind of comes off as a gunmetal tone in the pictures. And actually, I uh, recommend looking at this. I'm going to try to post this to the Fishnets and Phantoms page, and you can take a look at that on the group page on Facebook. One fish, the C. eclinidins, I like eclinidins, the C. eclinidins, only have the ultra black skin around their gut probably, to hide the light of any bioluminescent fish that they have eaten. So yeah, they um, don't want to give off the telltale that they have a nice and yummy filled gut. That's where you can get not only the sea aclindens fish, but you can also get whatever else they ate, and it's glowing in the inside. Given that these newly described species are just the ones that the team found off the coast of California, there are likely many, many more and possibly much darker ultra-black fish swimming in the deep, deep ocean. Finally, in a, an article from Interesting Engineering by Brad Bergen from June 17, 2021, Scientists have created a crystal that's 58% harder than diamond. Apparently, this harder and rarer crystal is unique and is named Lonsdelliate. It is also called hexagonal diamond. It is in large enough quantities to study and analyze, and the team found it to be stronger than a diamond. This is according to studies that were published in the journal Physical Review Letters. Diamond is a very unique material, director of the Institute for Shock Physics, Yogendra who is also the author of the study. In a SciTech daily report, he is quoted as saying, it is not only the strongest, it has the beautiful optical properties and high thermal conductivity of diamond. Now, we have made the hexagonal form of the diamond produced under shock compression elements that is significantly stiffer and stronger than regular gem diamonds. Gupta's research team used compressed gas and gunpowder to launch graphite disks in the shape of dimes at a transparent parent material. This was done at an ear screeching 15,000 miles per hour. That would be 24,140 kilometers per hour. When the graphite disks made impact, the shock waves transformed the disks into Lonsdaleite. The strength of the newly formed material was measured with sound waves, which travel more rapidly through stiffer or denser material. Just after the disks were struck, the scientists created a small sound wave and tracked its motion through the diamond with lasers. Unfortunately, the new material was only around for a few short nanoseconds before it lost stability. These diamonds, which will probably lead to more... Research and more creation of lab-grown diamonds are interesting to gem sellers because places like Zales and other jewelers like Pandora are going to stop using mined diamonds because of the ethical and questions of how the diamonds themselves are mined and the toll that it takes on the miners themselves. So yeah, uh, apparently lab-grown diamonds are the way to go. They are stronger, they are easier to get. I've been trying to cut out the slamming of the doors, but it is getting a little unnerving. (laughs) So I think that we're going to pause for a minute, which will not be noticeable to you, my podcast listener And I will follow this up with a review of the movie The Stylist, which is out now for purchase or rent on various streaming services, including Amazon. Okay, here we go with the review of The Stylist, and hopefully, The Building Phantoms will let me continue to record. Um, All right, I saw The Stylist about a week ago. Amazon Prime, I believe it's on some other streaming services like Shudder, but I'm not sure what else. Um, Stylist came out technically in 2020, but I would imagine because of the COVID pandemic, it was not able to be released at that time, or if it was, it was a smaller release. I guess that it was finally released on in March of 2021. It runs 1 hour and 45 minutes, and it is put out by Claw Productions and Arrow Films, along with Method Media and Six Tape Productions. It stars Najara Townsend as Claire, Bria Grant of Heroes and Friday Night Lights fame as Olivia, Sarah Maguire as Dawn, and the writer and director is Jill Gergesian and cinematography is notable by Robert Patrick Stern. It is based on the short film by Jill Gergesian and that is also of the same name. Apparently, Najera Townsend, the main actress, has been an actress since the age of three. Starring in her first film at the age of 10 um, it, The movie received a medium score of 5.7 from IMDb online And it has a very high rating by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes of 90% And a very low rating by the audience of Rotten Tomatoes of Let's see, what was that? 30, 32% I think that the reason for this difference is uh, my problems with the movie also. Okay, here come the spoilers. So spoiler alert up, alarm, alarm, spoiler alert up, pausing while you watch the movie The Stylist. I would say, hey, please hit that subscribe and like button on your podcast provider or follow. Uh, that would be extremely helpful to the Fishnets and Phantoms podcast. That is what we live off of our followers and our like buttons. Uh, do a review on the podcast catcher of your choice if you would like. I would be very happy to see any reviews. And if you have any suggestions, join us, as I've mentioned before, on the group Fishnets and Phantoms on Facebook. And you can also get a hold of us through Instagram, (laughs) Fishnets and Phantoms podcast, as well as through the Dark Discussions Network. Okay, now is everyone ready to go? Yes? Yes. Okay, The Stylist is a movie that looks beautiful. It um, has a very intimate feeling when it first starts. Stylist Claire is the first person that you see on the film and she is approached quickly by a person in need of an emergency haircut. Um, It's late at night in a big city and she is working alone after her co-workers finish their haircuts and as she um, cuts the woman's hair everything seems to be fine and then it's not uh, as, as one sees. The movie preys on a lot of the feelings of intimacy and the strangeness of the feelings of intimacy one has with workers in the fields of stylists, things like massage or any sort of personal styling, people who do nails and their clients, people who do hair, and um, various other practices like that. There is a feeling that one gets that you are giving access to these people of your, um, your own personal body, and you are relaxing as they manipulate things upon your body, and that vulnerability is a very noticeable feeling when you very... First, start doing these things. I'd imagine when you're when you're maybe a late child, early teen, or later, depending on your family. But um, the stylist movie make good use of preying on this vulnerability for horror effect. It does a good job of lulling the watcher into sort of a feeling of comfort and vulnerability in the first uh, minutes of the film as. Uh, the character of Claire does her job of listening to, listening to her client's woes and um, asking her questions about her personal life. And uh, the client talks about her family and how she can't wait to get back to see them. However, she also uh, mentions that she's having an affair with a young man in town and she laughs at her husband's faithfulness and his gullibleness, and she exploits the family's love of her as she flanders and betrays the family's trust. Apparently the character of Claire as the stylist does not like this because as she, as many stylists do, she gets her client a large glass of wine. Oh, there goes the ghosts again. Um, she gets uh, the clients a, the client a glass of wine and... As the woman sips it, she becomes more and more sleepy till she uh, drops the glass to the ground and passes out in the chair. At which point, Claire brings out a scalpel-like knife and cuts the line, the hairline, around her skull and gently peels off the scalp of the woman. It does not show you what is done, however, with the body, and therein starts the dissonance within the movie. There is some really good horror elements in the movie, but they kind of live on a dream realm where a lot of movies will have a more realism sort of base to it, where they show things more um, accurately, like the disposal of bodies or how the person is able to create this world of of horror of um preying upon their victims and the stylist does not do that it lets the dissonance live which is a bold choice that sometimes works and sometimes does not work there are some parts of the stylist that it seems like it is um plenty fine to ignore the, the disconjunction, dissonance between what would happen in a real world situation and a horror situation and the dreamlike nature of the film, but it is not completely dreamlike. It does have a lot of little parts of realism, just kind of like everyday talks about um, jogging or having an um, exercise bike, or planning for a wedding, which pull the, the movie's storyline back into the real world where you want more explanation for the things that happen. You want more exposition, more reasoning behind the character's motives, behind what is going on uh, with the character and where it takes place. Claire, the stylist, goes into her underground bunker after she murders the philandering woman. And this bunker um, area, it's kind of hard to tell from the way it's filmed, but it seems like it's possibly underneath the salon or perhaps in a different area. But it seems to be like a basement room that has a lot of um, candles and beautiful furniture that um, seems like it's been salvaged from like Salvation Army sort of um, look to it. Uh, A very shabby chic but times 20 um, look to it. And um, a lot of mannequins um, and, like, head dummies with various hairstyles, various hair colors on them, of all of scalped uh, heads. <laughs> um, so this is, again, where there's a bit of a problem with the movie in terms of the somewhat realistic aspects of the movie and the dreamlike aspects of the movie um, colliding and not necessarily a good way kind of clashing I guess would be more of the word for it um, the The movie has a beautiful cinematography style it is um, somewhat uh, like a neo giallo sort of look to it which has been popular in a lot of horror movies lately, a lot of genre movies in general. Um, there is a lot of Bright colors, uh, very vivid saturations of colors—blues and uh, blacks and greens and bright reds. The there's some of the film is done in like sort of, it looks almost like a jewel, jewel-like tones and jewel-like crispness. And then there's other parts that are. More soft of a softer light and more realistically filmed, which can work um, if if the story and the uh, cinematography blend together to show you perhaps the character going in and out of reality. Or but there's no real embarkation point. There's no real. Division between uh, the things that seem slightly more dreamlike and slightly more realistic. Now, the character of Claire herself. The character of Claire herself is a very sympathetic character. You like her. She. She seems very. Sweet and somewhat bumbling. Uh, she's uh, apparently an excellent hairdresser, everyone says, and people um, seem to connect with her in a, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, a work sort of friendly way, but she has a bit of like a cloak about her, which I think we all know people like that, people who just don't, they don't really socialize very well. They don't um, have the, the social gene or whatever about them. Uh, they show this in the way that Claire's co-workers react to her and also the way that she interacts with um, the near nearby coffee house workers. And it seems to me as though the person who runs the coffee house is trying um, to be nice to Claire to be friendly and it just doesn't click and Claire seems very angry at her for you know, just uh, little niceties that she says here and there, and which, of course, is the doom of the character. Clara also is shown to be receiving a call from the other main character of the movie, played by Bria Grant, which is Olivia. Bria Grant is somewhat um, familiar to watchers of recent horror movies. She's been in quite a lot of uh, lower budget horror movies, but she's a very good genre actress and she's produced and done a couple of her own films as well as a comic book. And yeah, she has a a, a good humor about her and she plays the part of a younger woman um, who's about to get married and calls Claire up to do um, her hair for the wedding. Now, Claire is very, very adamant about not wanting to do wedding hair, and um, Grant's character of Olivia is um, insistent without being insistent in a way that... I don't know exactly how to explain this trope of uh, female... I, I guess it'd be female internal politics. It's a sort of way of getting people to do what you want them to do by not asking them to do it. Um, she asks Claire to do it. She says she would really, really like her to do it, but then she um, puts out there that she's under no obligation and you know there's no pressure, as she says. But, of course, there is emotional pressure being put on Claire to do the wedding hair. Bria Grant does not seem to know that she's doing this. She seems to be... Um, a little bit in her own world, but then again, that's kind of a land that's very popular among people in bridal situations. She is shown uh, quite a bit, like her home life is shown, uh, her and her uh, husband-to-be are uh, talking, and they're talking somewhat cross cross-wise, cross-purposes. They don't seem to be communicating very well, but their wedding is still going on, and uh, she is determined to make friends with Claire, determined to get her more uh, into her group of friends, and invites her to her wedding shower, and Claire does not want to go at first because she's a very insular person, but she decides to after a while, and Before that, she goes over to Olivia's house to practice the wedding style on her and see how it works with, see how it works with the dress on and um, taking the dress on and off. And um, Claire is not exactly right about how she interacts with Olivia. She seems very hesitant, very overly attentive, I think might be part of the problem that she has. She seems to be extremely excited that she has uh, been invited to Claire's house and uh, brings a bottle of wine that she had uh, taking meticulous care to pick out, and uh, when her husband, um, or her husband-to-be, her fiancé, returns, she is very upset at the way that he interacts with, the way he interacts with Olivia. She does not feel that he sees Olivia completely, that he is truly invested in the relationship, and she doesn't, she doesn't approve of the wedding. I'm not sure, especially after what comes later, if Claire is meant to be in a uh, sort of lusting relationship towards Olivia or if she wants to be Olivia and they kind of leave that up to viewers imagination because they don't um, completely ever say what her feelings towards Olivia are. I'm guessing it is that she wants to be Olivia as things um, proceed further. Claire attends the bridesmaids party before the wedding bridal shower and um, it's at a dance club where she behaves very awkwardly. Um, well, she, she's, it's originally like a dinner club and dance club, I believe, and she behaves very awkwardly and... Uh, sits quietly. The other bridesmaids are young professionals like Olivia, and they do not, they do not mesh well with Claire and her odd personality, and poor Claire goes to the bathroom and is in tears because she knows that her one chance to make a good friend with Olivia is falling by the waysides, and she hears the um, other bridesmaids mocking her, and well, you know, it's going to go kind of badly for them after that. However, through um, Claire's voyage into Olivia's world, you see that she's not acting out of a feeling of intentional evil she is a person who is frightened and alone and she wants desperately to be someone who is in a loving family relationship and that is not working out for her partially because of her proclivities um and uh just just because that happens I guess in life but you do feel for Claire um she has a little dog that she loves a lot I'm going to do a little bit of a service um that i uh, generally get from the incredibly useful webpage. page, do, Does the Dog Die? I know that I, like some other people, can handle all sorts of realistic slasher violence in movies but any sort of animal violence is beyond the pale and just will completely devastate one. So I am going to tell the listeners here that happily the dog does not die at least on screen. Claire is really obsessed with and devastated by Olivia but she does decide to go and talk to Olivia again Unfortunately, in the way that someone who is obsessed does, she follows Olivia to her parking lot space after her work without having Olivia ever have mentioned where she works at or her schedule, which, of course, frightens her a bit. Olivia, however, still needs to get her hair done, and so she decides that everything's fine and forgives Claire. Claire, however, is more obsessed than than that, than simply uh, stalking her outside of her work. And she finds a way to break into Claire's apartment when she and her fiancé are gone. She looks around the apartment and smashes a couple things uh, somewhat unintentionally, I think, tries on Olivia's outfits and Olivia's clothes and seems to uh, sort of trying her life on trying you know trying to see what it would be like to be Olivia. She culminates this by crawling into Olivia's bed and pleasuring herself. While doing this, she hears the front door start to open. And miraculously, she manages to get enough of her clothes on and get out the window so that Olivia doesn't know, other than the house looking a little messed up, that someone has been in the house. Everything comes to... Boiling point at the wedding, and Claire is been somewhat forgiven for her oddities by the other bridesmaids, and I think that it's Claire's family, perhaps some of um, her fiance's family. There's a, a mother and a little girl who are in the back of the church to get the um, brides dress on and get everything put together, and Claire is doing very well. She a little bit of touch-ups to the other girl's hair and the little girl at the party is sitting quietly and watching, and um, Olivia goes to do her hair, which of course makes the audience's um, spine go up a bit, um, but everything is fine, and she does her hair very beautifully, and the wedding starts to proceed. Now, this is part of the part that I have a problem with in the movie, and I had already thrown up the spoiler flag, so this is the end of the movie. It has a very pokey, tropey, Twilight Zone sort of twist in it. The bridesmaids walk in, and the flower girl, and the bride walks up to the groom. He's become suspicious already uh, that not only apparently has the bride grown by several inches, she has the veil completely over her face, which is unusual. That is a tradition that was, it's still sometimes done, but it's usually done in a very um, conservative societies, uh, and it's more from a medieval type of wedding than modern weddings. He is able to get to the point where she is up next to him, without, I'm going to say, smelling anything or seeing anything completely wrong enough that he would acceptingly let this woman approach him. And he flips the veil back and there is Claire with the scalped head of hair of... Olivia on her head and uh, of course the, the groom screams and everyone in the uh, wedding p- party screams and you know I don't even know what happened then because I was so busy just like uh, being generally disgusted by the laziness of the ending of the film. This is something that when they very first showed Claire doing this, it just seemed extremely unlikely, extremely unbelievable, and um, kind of goes into that distortion of reality, of real world uh, aesthetics versus the dream world that Claire lives in. But she, okay, look, if you're trying to put a wig on over your actual hair, I apparently, I don't know if the director didn't know this, though. A lot of women do know this, um, or they didn't ask the makeup and hair people on the set. You can't just flap um, a wig onto your hair. And if you spent the time of, even if you very carefully spent the time of scalping someone of their hair, it's not going to come out in a perfect, beautiful hairstyle. It is... Going to be a, a mess. I mean, I suppose it's possible that Claire used a lot of hairspray and it wouldn't be as bad as it, but it wouldn't fit over her hair like a hat, like you could quickly slip on. You would have to, if she wasn't going to shave her head, um, which I'm assuming that in general she has hair and she's not like wearing a wig every day and just slip that old wig off to put on the new hair. It looks as though she just slips on the various scalps of different people over her hair, and they boom, miraculously turn into beautifully styled hair, and she becomes a completely different person. Now, again, that could be the dreamlike world that she lives in because of her various psychosi, psychosis, psychosi? I'm not really sure how that goes. What's the plural of psychosis? So yeah, the uh, rev- the big reveal at the end really just kind of cuts the whole movie off of it at its knees because it just seems very unlikely that this woman would be able to live her life out in uh, peace and harmony that she would get to the point where she's able to go to A wedding and do someone's hair and get trusted as much as she is. Now, I mean, I suppose there's things that could be underneath the surface where she is using, uh, I don't know, techniques of witness protections, um, places or something, but none of that is explained. And it just, it just rings uh, it rings a false note on the movie. And again, it's a horror movie. It's not supposed to be completely real. It has a big fantasy element to it, as a lot of horror movies do. However, something about the way that the movie is put together, it doesn't—it doesn't mesh well. So, even though this movie is really beautiful, uh, it's acted well, uh, the cinematography is done well, the music is okay. It's not kind of neither here nor there. The giant plot holes and believability problems take it down a few notches for me. So that is why I am actually kind of with. The IMDb score of 5.7 Though I probably would go a bit lower Maybe like a 4.5 um, Out of 10 Because uh, this movie on a whole is got parts of itself That are very good but it just fails at uh, the general psychopath of a good fantasy, horror-ish movie. So yeah, uh, that is my review for The Stylist. I would say see it if you are in the mood for watching an atmospheric movie that's well-acted, but know that you are going to get hit with a, a unbelievable and pretty bad ending. And as always, I'm not putting a dig on any of the actors or crew of the movie. They did a lot of good work, but they failed to quite... Yeah, so this one didn't quite do it for me, but it has a lot of good parts. The um, giallo uh, lighting and film aspects are probably the best parts of the movie. Um, however, the idea of the vulnerability of a stylist and client is a very interesting subject to bring up and I hope is addressed because it's, it is something that um, would be fun to explore and uh, the vulnerabilities that people in modern life give so willingly to others is something to look into. All right, so that ends this Fishnets and Phantoms podcast. Okay, well, you have a wonderful summer's day. I will see you, or you will hear me, again uh, next month sometime. And do not forget to hit a follow, like, and subscribe. Button on your favorite podcast catcher of choice. Please um, visit the Dark Discussions Network of podcasts. Carry yourself goodbye.